Before we get started, I want to tell you about my friends over at Tusk Logistics. That's T-U-S-K logistics.com. Tusk is a national network of the very best regional small parcel carriers. They are an excellent alternative to UPS and FedEx, who are going to raise their rates this year. Save 40% with Tusk Logistics. That's a real number. Save 40%. Check them out over at tusklogistics.com. Hit the Get Started button. I'll also put a link in the show notes. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. On the Logistics of Logistics, I talk to experts in logistics and transportation, warehousing, fulfillment, supply chain, and of course, technology. And during these interviews, I'm always the one asking the dumb questions. I ask the dumb questions so you don't have to. Today's topic is Powerful Automation Simplified with my friend Luke Buckborough. Luke is the Chief Growth Officer of the Rubik, makers of a warehouse agnostic autonomous robotic system. The Rubik's flagship product, the Freedom Pick, is an autonomous robotic system that can be used to streamline the box picking process in any type of warehouse. The Rubik team has created a brand new category of autonomous robots. Very interesting. So check out my conversation with Luke. So how's it going, Luke? It's going great, Joe. It's Friday. It's sunny. There's a 14-foot tall robot being built in my facility. The hammers are getting a little too loud, so it's a work-from-home day today. Hallelujah. Yeah, we tried to do this yesterday, and there was too much noise at your lo- at your location. Yeah, it, it's all steam ahead right now. So I, I, it's that catch-2020 where I want to do this, but at the end of the day, the, the bot's got to be built. So I'm happy that we can able to reschedule. Luke, please introduce yourself and your company and where you're calling from today. For sure. My name is Luke Buckrow. I'm the Chief Growth Officer here at the Rubik Technologies. We're a warehouse automation provider based in Calgary, Alberta. For the U.S. folk that don't know where that might be, Montana, we sit right above it on the border there. Fundamentally, we created the first of its kind mobile case-picking robot called Freedom Pick. Uh, It's an autonomous robotic system that opens the doors to new levels of seamless operations within existing facilities by bypassing the complexities typically associated with introducing automation, as I'm sure a lot of people on the call understand, can be a really red topic item. It's difficult, it's disruptive, it's very capital intensive. And we wanted to provide something that kind of broke down those barriers to entry for automation, provided a valuable, purpose-led, but simple system. Yep. You said case picking. What's What's a case? Yeah, a lot of different analogies in the industry. Cases for us really mean cardboard boxes. There really isn't a robot that comes out and say that we move cardboard boxes in terms of the variety of size, weights, and configurations. But without getting too far ahead here on the system, we virtually move anything inside of a warehouse. And I'll explain a little bit further in in how we get that done. Sounds good. Sounds good. So tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Give us some career highlights before you joined the Rubik. As I, as I mentioned, Luke Buckborough, my one of my favorite taglines is I have a really long last name and a really hard one to pronounce. Kudos to you, Joe, for being able to pick it up real quick. <laughs> I was born in Toronto, Ontario, a bit of the center of influence or kind of the real mover and shaker within Canada over the last couple of years. And I think it's the first city most people think about. To go way back, I was the really annoying, talkative kid. And what that translated into was a career as, as a child actor, if we want to call it, or unquote, was lucky enough age of eight, one day, I'll give you guys a quick story or an analogy kind of that's, that's real. If you think of the environment that you're supposed to be in at a certain age, I, I always wanted to break that barrier, go above that ceiling. 
you think of it like this on a Friday night, your parents have a couple friends with kids the same age as you go to school with them. The basement represented salty chips, sugary soda, screams, video games, crying, playing tag, hide and seek. I never wanted to be there for some reason. It was fun, but what was upstairs on the main level represented maturity and breaking the boundaries and outside of your comfort zone because it was wine and charcuterie boards and talking and the music was lower so you could really speak to people. And my eight-year-old butt always walked up those stairs and wanted to be a part of that crowd. So translated that into acting, musical theater. I loved being in front of people. I didn't really care if I failed. I just kept going. But really, the, the biggest takeaway from my, my child acting years from about 8 to 13 or so was the word no. A fairly scary word. Joe, at a young age, you hate to hear it. You want to fight against it. And in the beginning, I did. But after the, about, I don't know, the 1500 no, when I wouldn't get an, a part in a movie or a part in a commercial, I started to love the word. Not for the, the reasons of that it was a wall. It was just a door I had to learn to open. So I, I took myself and said, no is not a word. It's an acronym. It's N for next opportunity and O for op uh, for opportunity rather. Not just a word, but N dot O. And every time I got a no, I'd, I'd step back and go, okay, what about that can I take away so that the next no is closer to a yes? And from there, was lucky enough, I started knocking on doors, selling window cleaning. Probably the scariest thing to do at the age of 14. Walking up to a random house, knocking on it and saying, hey, give me your money because I'm going to do something for you. That really led me to believe in the ability to forge relationships and connections. I was lucky to going from big subdivisions to smaller, nicer neighborhoods to some of the nicest neighborhoods across Ontario and met people that were willing to mentor me and take me on at an early age. And that's really where I landed in kind of the, the luxury and, and the tech scene. I, at 18, would probably have been the youngest hire at Saks Fifth Avenue, probably in the, in the company's history. Funny enough, they thought I was older than I was, which, which happens a lot, actually. And from there, I was able to sell garments of Gucci and, and Ferragamo to some of Toronto's elite individuals. And from there, it led me to, to ask them, where are you? What are you doing? How can I become a part of it? And really built an early on base that no one cares what you're selling if they don't like you. Or even more so, people don't buy things. They buy into the people that offer said things. Right. And early on, really wanted to jumpstart my career by getting into the tech scene, landed myself into the prop tech space, property technology, was really excited to lead a charge of a kind of a sales team from Toronto, but based in Calgary. And last year, no, 2021, actually, I got in the car, kissed mom goodbye, drove across the country and landed in Calgary, never thought I'd leave Toronto. I, if you ask any of my friends, I was Toronto's poster boy. I wanted to be a part of the, the excitement and kind of that rat race of New York almost, but in Canada. And crazy enough, about three weeks into moving to Calgary, I, I joined a company called Neo Financial. That would be a, a big career highlight of mine. I would have been the youngest on the team by a, a few years minimum. I was able to be around some of the co-founders of some of the largest companies across Canada. And Neo Financial now has achieved unicorn status in Canada's fastest growing company, reaching over a billion dollars in value. From there, I really learned team and leadership and the ability to, to work with people, but even more so partnerships. Partnering with companies, individuals, you can grow a company so much faster because I always say, don't go directly to your customer, go to your customer's service provider. Why? They already have a relationship. They're already deep within the either professional and personal aspects of their career and, and the business agreement they're under. 
So building partnerships is really, I think, my biggest career highlight. I was able to build partnerships with, with great local brands, great regional brands, great national brands. And from there, I uh, was lucky enough, without getting too long-winded here, joined a quick private equity firm, learned a little bit more about the maths and the statistics of things and how to structure deals. And from there, saw the Rubik's pitch deck about two years ago now. The company was founded in 2020, so I was about a year shy from its kind of founding date, but was smacked in the face with the innovation, smacked in the face with the product, but even more so smacked in the face with the story. Our two founders, Masood and Tim, left everything behind, very successful careers in R&D and innovation and robotics within the O&G space in Alberta, and told their wives, hey guys, get the cars out of the garage, we're building a robot. <laughs> so really it just hit me early on and struck a core within me. To, I loved entrepreneurship. I loved building things and what a place to do it from garage to facility now to a thriving company with a lot of interesting opportunities in the pipeline. But enough about me, Joe. Super excited to talk about the product. <laughs> yep. You mentioned ONG, that's oil and gas. That's the main biz in Calgary. I, but I don't know how, I, I know that's a massive, it's probably one of the bigger oil reserves there is on the planet, right? Yeah, fourth to be exact. Yeah. So I know a lot of that gas ends up here in the US or that gets, I think a lot of it gets refined in the Midwest and also down in Texas. Yep, you're correct. So anyway, we came back to case picking. So is it one robot you guys are selling? That is that the main? Yeah, we sell a robot we named Freedom Pick. Freedom Pick stands about 14 feet tall, reaches 33 feet in height, picks off of virtually any surface of any kind of static box that you have in your facility. But even more, most important things to break down are we're a dog with a bone. You throw, we go pick, we bring it back to wherever you need it to be. But we also have so much in terms of optimization and software features that we're able to truly provide value to customers, not just one job. We can grow within the warehouse from a perspective of inventory cycle counting to damage detection on boxes. Why? Hardware is an ocean and software are the boats that float on oceans. And through the partnerships angle that I mentioned to you, we can develop a system that just increasingly grows in terms of its value perspective for customers in the industry. So when you talk about case picking or picking up a box, so that box is on a shelf somewhere in a warehouse and it has to go some typically, I'm assuming somebody takes a cart over there, climbs up a ladder, grabs that box, puts it on the cart and then takes it over to some sort of pack station and then labels it, ships it out. It's overly simplified, I'm sure. But what does your Freedom Pick do? Yeah, so Freedom Pick is an autonomous mobile robot base sitting on an elevator chassis that moves 33 feet high. AMR is an autonomous mobile robot. The ability that we built our own has allowed us to be something that not a lot of mobile case picking bots are today, and that's fully autonomous. We don't require any QR codes or in the mark in the industry for digital markers or magnet guided flooring. We can operate in one of the narrowest aisles within facilities. So our bot essentially has a backpack with eight slots on it and one slot on the base manipulator. What we're able to do is through connecting to a WMS, a warehouse management system, or WES, warehouse execution system, or our internal simplistic WMS, what we term Freedom Pick OS, we can go and understand where the location of a box is, how to get there, route optimization, where to place it. We can sequence out orders in terms of e-commerce. E-commerce is a big buzzword in the industry right now. COVID was the, it was a monster under the bed that allowed it to really shine. And with our system, we're able to act human in the sense of 
having that flexible and adaptable demand. If you've ever been in a warehouse, our key market in the beginning is going to situate within the third-party logistics industry. And the reason why is if you look at a 3PL, it's an umbrella organization for brands. They handle their fulfillment. A lot of people understand DHL on the call, that yellow and red package you get at your door. What we're able to do is those brands will ship a multiple different sizes and variations of boxes. And the problem with robotic systems today is they lack the ability to move cases, so cardboard, going back to that initial statement. One of our brands, for example, ships one vendor 128 different box sizes. Any other system, let's talk first mobile, can move roughly two out of the 128 boxes. When you talk about ROI, when you talk about really value, moving two out of 128, what's the point really fundamentally? And the other thing is they most of the time utilize what we call an automation tote. It's an aluminum box. It's proprietary, quote unquote, and they sell them in the thousands because you need to utilize this style of box in order for the robot to flourish. Problem is if a box doesn't fit in that tote, it still has to sit on wire guided pallet racking in a facility with a human operator going to pick it. If you have both at the same time, it creates this, why am I doing this then? Whereas with the Rubik, with that one brand, for example, with 128 different boxes, we move 115 of those boxes day one. So in terms of an ROI scenario, we basically take on all the demand of that brand and we can completely automate that system. So if your system, Freedom Pick, receives information from warehouse management system or the warehouse execution system, it says, go get, go get that laptop computer on and it's, it, it, I'm assuming it gives a shelf location. It'll go to that location, grab that laptop, put it in, at, and then take it to the pack station. Is that correct? Yeah. The, the, you, that would be called like replenishment or an each pick, for example. Um, there are a lot of different use cases, but you hit it on the head. The robot internally through a WMS will, will understand it needs to go pick up box location A in, in warehouse location B. And from there, actually, the beauty of the system is once we store a location, we internally understand that that box has been stored there. So we can even understand where something is in the facility and take that away from our client. So with this system, let's just say there was, I'll use clothes as an example. Let's just say there's an order and this order, somebody ordered three different sweaters and a pair of pants and some shoes. And they're all going to, we'll sleep with the sweaters and the pants. So it's got to go to multiple locations for the same order it grabs a blue sweater does it does it collect all of that stuff at three different shelf locations and then go to the pack station or is it only capable of one at a time no so i want to start this off by saying i love the sweater analogy we would pick up a box with a sweater inside of it we can't move like a singular item but the beauty of freedom pick is one of the, the fundamental issues with an amr an autonomous mobile robot is they only move one good at a time our bot moves up to nine goods at one given time. We have a backpack that has eight slots within it with rollers. And they basically, it's like a little home for each box as it's moving from point to point. Our bot would understand that it has three picks to place 
it'll go grab a box, go to the next location, grab a box, go to the next location, grab a box, store it securely in our backpack that sits at a five degree angle. So the box is secure. And as we maneuver it, there's no opportunity for the box to fall, get damaged of some sort. So we move upwards of nine packages at any given moment at two meters per second. So in terms of throughput, what we wanted to build was a purposely built robot that would provide not only valuable aspects in terms of taking on that flexibility, but more, no matter what, the reason why people automate is to get things done faster, more efficiently, and cheaper. And our bot does it four or five times what the current competition's throughput are. I'll put a number out there. I'm sure there are a couple of people on this podcast that won't believe it. I happily invite you to come down to my facility and see it in action. Current kind of mobile case picking bot on the market today moves roughly anywhere from 35 to 40 picks an hour. Picks an hour be they move 40 cases an hour. My bot in, in, in different simulated environments in a facility based in Mississauga, we're moving upwards of 100 to 150 picks per hour. So in terms of throughput, we're the, we're the Muhammad Ali of robots. <laughs> yeah. So when I see, so I think I've read this before and it makes sense that one of the biggest challenges for automation is the human hand and the human eyesight, right? So we can look and go, I can... I have the hand, I can reach in, grab a sweater out of one sweater out of the box, put it into in, into this, this into the robot that's going to take it back to the pack station. Now, is it grabbing up a whole box and taking that box to an operator who's at a fixed location and taking that out? Or how, how are you, how is that managed? Yeah, you, you're right. Exactly. One of the best scenarios to utilize for people that aren't in the industry, i.e. everyone I know from family perspective, my girlfriend always asks, what, what do you do? Costco. Costco is probably the best analogy to coin up. So we've all been to a Costco. Imagine that, okay? imagine that the floor that we're able to pick our oranges and apples, that's there for us because we can't reach the 30 feet heights. But when you go into those long miles where there's pallets full of stuff 30 feet high, that's just all extra of the goods that we can pick on the, the main floor. My bot, in essence, goes, picks up the cases on the high racking aisles, brings it down to the floor level and passes it off to a human. We can put it on a conveyor belt to another bot system. We're pretty agnostic to either operation. We will just pick a case, drop it off at a location where, yes, in the scenario of one vendor shipped out 50 blue sweaters and they only need three, they'll open up the case, take the three sweaters out, close it back up. My bot will then pick that box up, go back to the aisle and drop that location again. Replend bot, full active, you can call it that scenario. Yep. I want to take a quick time out to tell you, you can now listen to the logistics of logistics on Wreaths Across America Radio. I'll put a link in the show notes. Wreaths Across America provides informational, inspiring content about members of the U.S. Armed Forces, their families, and military veterans. Their mission is to remember, honor, and teach. Wreaths Across America succeeds because of the generous support of the trucking community. Take a listen and please consider volunteering. So, I want to switch gears for just a sec. So yesterday when we were talking, I don't know, we were talking about why automation and why now? And we've always had the dream in warehousing and fulfillment that someday we'll have robots doing all this work. We'll have automation doing all this work. But the reality is for a long time, automation, robots, both were way too expensive we didn't have significant volume in most warehouses. So if you don't have a lot of repetitive tasks, if you don't have an enormous volume, it, it can't justify the investment. And then last but not least, we had lots of 
labor. There's always people willing to go do those jobs. By the way, did you ever watch, look at an old documentary on YouTube or on TV, and people digging sewage systems or digging, digging canals, and there's just tens of thousands of people doing this. And you're like, those are our great grandparents. And they would do that work and go, oh, yeah, came back over from the old country, got this great job. I dig holes for sewage systems. Yeah. We don't do that anymore. <laughs> we found machines to help us do that work. But on top of that, right now, if somebody says, hey, we don't have all this earth moving equipment, we're going to hire a whole bunch of people to do it. Good luck. Because like, no, nobody's raising ditch diggers anymore. And that's So getting back to it, right now, automation like the Freedom Pick is affordable more affordable than it was in the past. The technologies, it's, I won't say it's a known entity because it's still getting better and better, but it's, there's a lot of the components are less expensive. We have big volume now in warehousing and it's going to get bigger. And then last but not least, we have a tremendous labor shortage. Canada and the US are the same in that regard, is that we're having fewer kids than we need to have. And and as the baby boomers retire, we have a big labor shortage. We need automation for these warehouses. Yeah, it's no longer this nice to have like an Amazon or a Walmart has the budget and they've been automating for a long time. Mid-level players, small level players, all the way up to the large guys, they're frantically looking because they've, if you look at it this way, to your point, Joe, if they had done this five, six, 10 years ago, they would have done it with technology that now would be outdated, but at least they would have had kind of a, a foundation of automation. So now you have this crazy world of, I need to automate. How do I get there? Because right now in automation. Yeah. But, yeah. By the way, before you forget off that topic, I read Arriving Today by Christopher Mims. He's a writer for the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. He was talking about a lot about e-commerce and warehousing and all this, our business, right? And he talks about that supply chain. And he talked quite a bit about Amazon, of course. And I think they have 150 locations that they would call warehousing fulfillment. Only two of them are heavily automated. We know how many people they hire at Christmas time. They hire, I'm guessing, tens of thousands of extra workers. So the biggest company in the world, Amazon, I think they're the biggest company. Oh, wait, Saudi Aramco is bigger than they are probably. But one of the largest companies in the world is and with a, a lot of money has has basically automated a few of their locations but their goal i believe is to have very automated systems in all their locations so but it's it doesn't happen overnight but as the technology gets less expensive more accessible and the more you sell the more you're going to invest and the cheaper all that stuff gets and the more expectations rise in the warehousing business right Exactly. And thank you so much for bringing that up. My, my VC investors that we're speaking to right now are having the same kind of, what do you mean they've only really automated five, 10 facilities across the facility? You, you got to remember, even Amazon has been in operations for 20, 30 years. Walmart is probably the best. They've been in operation for 70 years. They don't have the ability to operate and automate an ongoing established facility that, that ships out a thousand orders per day or per hour really is the throughput that a lot of these facilities are doing. You, you got to remember that there's no solution for automating brownfield facilities. Unleveled flooring, 20-year-old guide, wire-guided pallet racking, boxes that are cardboard and not automation totes. 
the, the true automation lies in building a brand new facility from the ground up and putting it in at that point. You can't, the best analogy is you can't put sugar into an already in the oven blueberry pie. You, you messed up. You, you had to put sugar in the bowl before you mixed it into the oven. And that's really the problem that we saw in the industry. And when people say, oh, well, Amazon's already established and they're already automated, let me tell you, not even close. <laughs> they wouldn't be hiring as many people as they have. And by the way, I think we'll also see, we're not going to see a completely dark warehouse where you say, yep, it pumps out millions of units per year. We're going to see people in there, but hopefully there'll be fewer and fewer people. And I think those will be more and more skilled people who are doing the work that humans can do that robots can't do yet, which could be, yeah, I asked Freedom Pick to go up 30 feet in the air and grab something for me. I don't have to get on a ladder. I don't have to risk my life getting on that ladder. Bring it down to me. I'm better at the robot picking out the right sweater, putting it in the tote, whatever it's got to be put into. So I think we're going to see what we said all the time on the podcast. Let the humans do the human work. Let the robots, let the automation, let the AI do the work that humans aren't as good at. Yeah. And I think the, the biggest thing to mention that I love, it's the analogy of Terminator versus Iron Man. People are really afraid in some of these headlines around AI, ML taking over 40% of the workforce over the next 10 years. Are we building a Terminator or are we building an Iron Man? If you look at it, a Terminator is meant to kill the human race. Iron Man is meant to help the human race by putting on the suit of armor, but still being human. And that's really fundamentally what we built here. We built a robot that acts human with the inherent flexibility and adaptability to operate within an existing brownfield environment and take on work day one. But it, it makes things better. And, and to your point there around, I'll even challenge the jobs that robots can't do yet and jobs that humans are doing. It's really repetitive tasks. I, I, I love when we get on the topic of like morality around, oh, we're getting rid of jobs. If you talk to any massive CEO of a fulfillment or 3PL or any kind of warehouse distribution company, they would beg their employees to stay. You, you said something great yesterday, Joe. No one has ever retired inside of a warehouse for a certain client you spoke to because no one wants the job. If, if I had to flip the same burger 300 times a day, it's going to get old. And that's what happens in warehouses the same box three, four, five, six hundred times a day. My back hurts. I'm, I'm tired of going up 50, 30 feet high. I, I don't want to do this anymore. So it's no longer this like we're getting rid of jobs because we all woke up one day and said, screw the human race. We're getting rid of jobs because the jobs don't have people to fill it. I was talking to one of my buddies, Steve, he's an executive recruiter. And, and I told him about a warehouse that I knew of that hired a ton of people and then lost most of them. And then they're constantly have this high turnover. And he said, they're not doing the right job recruiting. And I said, maybe I said, but I would suggest that in this, most people aren't capable of doing this work. And I said, I don't think it's any secret. We've got a weight problem here in this country. And you look around and say, okay, I hired this guy. He's a little overweight. And now I'm going to ask him to lift all day. I'm going to ask him to stand on his tippy toes, grab something off that shelf. I'm going to, I'm going to probably teach him to do the things safely, but he's got to walk a lot. Maybe we've got certain jobs within the warehousing business that most people aren't capable of doing. And you could say, yeah, but you get in great shape doing it. That maybe on the way to getting in great shape, you're going to pull your back. Yeah. If you think about it this way, 
there are 35,000 serious accidents in North America last year inside of the warehousing industry. Uh, because of that, 95 million lost work days. I'm, I'm no mathematician, Joe, but I thought it was only 365 days. <laughs> but apparently 95 million were lost. And even more important, like $84 million a week go out in insurance premium payments. And it, it, it's just no longer this, we'll, we'll let it slide by. Demand is picking up. Throughput is needing to be higher. And the only way you get there is through automation. So let's talk about your system. We had a few things we hit before we hit record. We talked about four things that you think is makes your uh, freedom pick different and better than what's out there. So what's the first thing that uh, you guys have strived to do with uh, freedom pick? Yeah, I think it's our approach to flexibility and being, being flexible, like from multiple angles and verticals. Most importantly is the on-demand adaptability to work in, in an existing operation that is running and needs to automate, doesn't know how. The way we did that was not only from our approach of building features and the engineering capabilities, but asking what problems in the industry were. So we touched on this quickly, and I'll get through this point fast. Box variation. Right now, inside of robotics facilities, you need to utilize a single tote. And I can store a couple boxes in there, and I go ahead and put it away in proprietary infrastructure. For me to automate, I have to start from zero and then go. Whereas what we want to do is we want to go into facilities that are already at 100, maybe take them to 99, and then get them right back up to 100. My bot is essentially the closest thing to a, an employee called John, who gets hired on August 1st, comes into a facility, goes through orientation, a couple of weeks, learns the environment, learns what's happening. But after that, they get better over time. And that's fundamentally what my bot is. It's employee John that starts working and it gets better and more valuable and richer and, and just continues to provide value to the system. The other thing is mobility. Wait, before you leave that, how does it get smarter? Yeah. Wow. So really... Day one, our bot will rely a little bit on kind of the WMS systems to tell us where to go and where our box is. And we'll scan the aisles and understand the way that boxes are positioned right now. But as the bot is, is working, we'll start to understand packages that move more. Let's put them at the end of the aisle, not at the end of the aisle that's closer to nothing where we're going to drop it off on location A instead of B. Let's not put them as high. Let's bring them lower so we don't have to have as much time moving up and down. Let's move heavier packages lower to the ground so we don't have too much security or confidence issues around going 30 feet high and picking up a package that's 100 pounds. As the bot starts to put itself, its, it, it, its own locations and puts boxes away itself, it'll start to do it in a way that humans just won't. A human is going to find a spot and put it there. If there's empty space, let's, let me shove it in there. And that's really where damage comes. A lot of boxes are damaged because of the way they're put in racking. What we'll do is we'll start to understand how to make it more optimal to get more throughput, less damage, faster, more efficient processes. So is it making a, is it making a suggestion to us that we have to rearrange these shelves or should rearrange? Suggestion, it'll just do it. Really, when, when you work with a Freedom Pick bot, again, we're a dog with a bone. You throw it, we'll pick it up. But really, the beauty of optimization and, and auto automation is it'll start to do it for you and you'll just you, you'll be the reaper of those benefits. Yeah, I like that. And again, what I also like is that this, this can come in and start adding value without a complete redesign of my facility, which when I was in automotive, we were always use this analogy about 
changing the product development process was that it's like rewiring a 747 on a flight between LA and New York, right? You're running a business. So when somebody says, we're going to redesign this product development process or any process within it, uh, you say, hey, we're going we're gonna to rearrange the assembly plant this week. That's fine as long as you can still produce the required amount of vehicles. That's always the challenge. So when you come into a warehouse, nobody's saying, yeah, we'll have a few down weeks because we got this new robot. <laughs> well, it figures out. It's going to be disruptive and we'll upset all of our customers for a few weeks and then we'll be <laughs> back to normal. <laughs> you even got to think of like contract links nowadays. Most of the time when you're in an ongoing operation, the, the brand that they've had a contract with is already two and a half years in and they only have two and a half years left. Without a mobile platform, like we look at Hive Systems or Exotex of the world, the auto stores, they're incredibly valuable. I will never in a million years say that they're not probably some of the most innovative and step change in robotic warehouse automation in the history of it. But the problem is, is I have to bolt something in the ground. And for me to bolt something in the ground, building a house doesn't happen in a day. I got to rip the flooring out. I got to get rid of space. I got to make sure things are aligned. I got to bring in an engineer team, architectures, all this stuff. With my bot... It's mobile. You, you turn it on, it starts working day one. Rate of return on investment, the second it's turned on, you don't have to wait three years. You don't have to wait six, seven, eight years for it to see your money back. And, and the worst scenario, which is the most realistic, you put this in, you lose the contract two and a half years later, and you put this incredibly valuable system in a warehouse, but you don't have a brand automated. So really the ability to utilize a mobile solution that's scalable, whether you have uptimes, downtimes, peak season, whatever you're going through, my bot can take on that demand and we can ship you more and take less. I love it. So the first thing is your approach is you want something that's going to hit the ground running, easy to use, very adaptable, flexible, which by the way, that's what humans are. When we talk about why we have humans in our warehouse, we are very flexible and adaptable. We we can comp constantly reiterate if we need to. Most of our machines don't. Our machines do one thing. And what you're getting at is I need them to be that flexible, adaptable solution that I can put to work right away. So what's the next What's the next thing that makes your freedom pick the right choice? Yeah. Um, I think from an engineering perspective and innovation and feature set, we have features that are completely first of its kind brand new to market. Um, we'll get too heavy into them. Uh, I'm not an engineer by trade. My co-founding team and the team of 15 engineers I have in the, in the facility, they really speak to it. But high level, we are the first mobile system that does case picking that's opted to utilize a suction-based telescopic arm. This does three things for us, okay? John, never done before. We are the most storage-dense system on a mobile platform. Why? Because we do something called triple deep place and and and, and reach. We're able to maneuver a box three positions back in a four foot aisle left to. So right now in robotics or in a warehouse, what you have is you have about an eight foot wide aisle because that's what you need with forklifts and people and the guidelines. One four foot wide pallet rack that's stored double deep on either side. But with Rubik, you can have three four foot wide pallet racks. So 12 feet of concentrated storage space, a four foot aisle and another three 12 feet of concentrated storage space because my bot can pick from the middle six feet inside of that one location, go around the other aisle and pick six feet from that location as well, all on a mobile platform. 
And all you have to do is use everyday pallet racking that you already have inside the facility. The second thing that provides us is not to beat a dead horse here, but really box variation. We can maneuver virtually any box inside of the facility. We have not found a box yet that we can't move based on size, weight, or anything like that. And then the third thing is really the ability to embed vision systems into that arm so that we aren't picking blind. Right now in robotics, most systems pick blind. If there isn't a a box there, or if there is a box there, they'll still try to put it in that position. My bot, going back to the beautiful kind of analogy of acting human, we have an embedded AI vision software system that understands where it is. It'll go up to an aisle, understand there's a missing location, it'll drop a box in there. We don't require QR codes, fiducial markers, and that leads to less setup time, less disruptive, less integration from a physical standpoint. So that arm really allowed us to be, in my mind, the most flexible, the most valuable, and the highest level of throughput in terms of storage and ROI in the space. Very nice. Very nice. I, I talked to you yesterday about this, and this th- we could do a whole podcast on this, but we use shipping containers and shipping the the reason shipping containers are so valuable is because they were got a few standardized sizes we would not have global trade not even a fraction of it without those shipping containers because it allowed us to load and unload boats and put those onto rail and put them onto trucks so we didn't have to constantly unload now we're starting to see certain companies i just talked to dhl the other day they are using they are using machines to unload and load trucks. I could see us trying, we already are pretty standardized around pallets, but I could see us getting to a point, not that we need to do it for freedom pick, but if we could say there are only three or four sizes boxes or you know five, whatever it is for certain warehouses, it would make life a lot easier. But we also know that the consumer doesn't want to receive something in the mail in a giant box that should have been in a a FedEx pack. But it does make you think if we start using automation, yeah, it's yours is flexible. But for the most part, if we could say it doesn't have to be super flexible, our, all of our systems work around these four, five, 10 boxes, box sizes, life gets a little easier. I think you're totally on the money there. And the reason that the shipping container example is perfect. It was, let's just put, if, if it can fit in that, you can book a full one, book a half one, book a quarter one. That's what it's going to be shipped in across Atlantic, across Pacific, all that stuff. My, my two analogies or two examples as to why this, is, this doesn't need to happen. One, I'm so thankful and lucky enough to say to the industry, you don't need to do that. <laughs> we have something called Freedom Pick Bot that allows you to automate what you have today. From a second perspective, the amount of companies I speak to now, I've been a part of innovation labs and, and accelerator programs, that their mo- sole focus is focusing on sustainability of fulfillment. To your point, if you have a whisk and you get it in a box that should have had a, a teddy bear the size of six feet, what the hell? And, and, and the carbon offsets of moving that box for such a small item, there's enough papers and, and, and findings and writings to say that's bad for the environment. So from a two-pronged approach around, the reason that we don't have to go down that, that channel is because there will be systems like Freedom Pick. There'll be more systems like Freedom Pick that'll come out and be able to take on that variability. And second, sustainability. That, that, that's top of mind for everyone right now. How do we make this world a cleaner, greener place? And the way we do that is by actually shipping things in boxes that are 
the right size and the right fit and the right carbon footprint for that item. I want to take a quick time out to tell you about my friends over at Green Screens. That's greenscreens.ai. Green Screens is a dynamic pricing technology for the truckload spot market that delivers buy and sell side market intelligence to help brokers and 3PLs grow and protect their margins. Freight brokers and 3PLs using Green Screens gain the following advantages. Faster pricing for both buy side and sell side transactions. Pricing that is more accurate and more likely to win profitable business. Guys, dynamic pricing is the next killer app. Hundreds of freight brokers are already using it because it enables them to develop faster, more accurate quotes. This is the time. Check out Green Screens in the show notes, greenscreens.ai. So getting back to it, I was at a shipper, this was before COVID, and I remember they had a few different types of pallets sizes and they were shipping big units but sometimes the smaller units too and i remember they had different size pallets but then they also had different size boxes and the engineer in me wanted to say no these boxes all get configured this way on this pallet but then somebody points out yeah but that's one that customer needs one other box where does that go oh god and it's really becomes giant puzzle. But again, I can see us getting to a point, not because again, we're going to always have exceptions and we need to be able to work around them. But we also know that standardized sizes of stuff helps and pallet all by itself. I think what a great thing that is where everything says, is it a, how many pallets? And when you say it's six pallets, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Anyway, let's talk about the next thing. And I think the next thing we talked about before we hit record is your your product is made in Canada. And a lot of other, the robotic systems that we talk about, a lot of the other automation we talk about is made in China. And that's a problem. Talk about that, please. Yeah, I, I want to go even further than saying made in China. It's born in China. The Rubik isn't just made and manufactured across North America, both in the US and Canada. We're built Canadian with the fundamentals of, of three things that are qualitative, but they, they matter. We're built purposely. We don't just build it quick, build it cheap and get it out in the market. We spend time making sure it works. The second thing is we really spent time on listening and asking to customers, talking. We don't just want to get to market quickly. But don't get me wrong, it's an expensive industry to be in, but most importantly, quality. I'm not going to sit here and say that you can't have quality products come out of China, but when they're fundamentally built and manufactured and thought of and constructed in China, you do lose a bit of that qualitative and quantitative purpose of what does it mean to be a quality product? Our metal standards, our billet standards, our bolt standards, all of that is at the highest level possible, which only means one thing. Ours lasts longer. Our, ours is built longer. Our, ours is meant to drive longer. We were in Washington, D.C. a few weeks ago. We met with Ambassador of the U.S., Ambassador of Canada, and, and every single thing we spoke to them about, we said, Luke, we, we're leaving this meeting with two kind of takeaways. One, you built the best robot and you built an American robot. And kudos to America, you're in the automotive industry, the backbone decades ago of kind of GDP and, and, and advanced manufacturing in the US. Cars were meant to last. Cars were meant to be built for families to drive them for 25 plus years. It's interesting. I think also I, I'm a big believer that when 
I buy something like a robot that it is not going to be just, hey, it just got dropped off one day and that's the end of the relationship. The check cleared and you guys say, thanks. Thanks. We'll call you when we're trying to sell something else. I need a partner. And the challenge sometimes with buying something from China right now is they we do have an uncertain future with them in that there are tariffs right now and there are limitations of what we can buy and trade with them. The partnership piece, there is a 12-hour time difference for me, a little different for you. But also there's cultural differences. I, I, by the way, I spent a lot of time in China. Wonderful people. I'm not against the people. Yeah, no. But it is hard to work with somebody who wakes up when you go to bed. And Canada is in the, usually in the same time zones. And you speak the language. Even, the, even in Quebec, they speak the language. I love you bring up the partnership angle. Even more so the idea that the bot itself from many perspectives, is building a moat. It's, it's securing your automation strategy. There have been companies in the past in the drone space and uh, advanced manufacturing, they are now barred into selling into the US. One day, poof, gone. I can no longer buy this technology. And you look at it from a defense angle, the Rubik is really rich and powerful for Boeings of the world and Bombardiers and you know, uh, L3 Harris's and Pratt & Whitney's and Raytheon's. Why? They can't use foreign automation inside of high security clearance facilities where they're building the next fighter jet or they're building the next semiconductor or whatever is going on. My bot is one of the only sources that they can utilize and leverage because I have cameras and lasers and sensors all over that thing. I could take a picture of a turbine blade in a moment and ship it across the Atlantic, no problem, and end up in China. So it's one of these things where from a geopolitical standpoint too, you're building and securing an automation future that is bulletproof when you work with Canadian and American partners, even Mexican, European. But, but the majority of automation comes from the Asia majority. Yep. Yeah. Even if it was designed here, there is that element. One other thing, safety. When I talk about warehousing, my concern always is safety because it's hard enough to get good people. I get good people in the where in the warehouse, I, and when I say good, hardworking, but also able to think on their feet, able to do the right thing over and over again. If I start having injuries because they were up on a ladder and they had to they had to get something from twenty feet in the air, first off, I'm limiting who who can do the job because some people are going to say that's not going to that's not a good fit for me. I don't feel fit enough to get up there and back. I'm too old for that. I'm, I, I, I don't want to do that all day. And by the way, if I had to go up a ladder uh, 10 times, no no big deal. But if I had to do it all day long, I, I'm counting the days until I end up with some sort of accident, especially when I'm reaching to grab a box. So having something like this allows me to keep my people safe because they're not having to do certain lifting, but also not having to get up on ladders for stuff. Yeah. And Joe, I'm sure there are facilities all over the world that still use ladders. Thank God a lot of them do use forklifts because it takes that strain. Of, of, but safety, I think it's something that really doesn't get spoken enough about. Automation also is scary. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be honest and raise my hand here and say that robots and stuff, they, they create their own risks. But fundamentally, the Rubik is getting rid of the most unsafe, the most dangerous, the hardest to find labor, the hardest to retain labor, which is case picking at height. It's going that 30 feet high. It's picking that 50 pound box day in, day out. 
Every one of our customers deals with workers' comp, deals with insurance, deals with them not wanting to come into work, them leaving after three months because they're like, screw this. We are solving a real problem for warehouses, which is case picking at height. And my bot does it in ways that allows us to be the most safe and the most secure. One of the things we have is a floor suction stabilization system, completely new to market, never been done before. Right now, to pick a case at 30 feet high, any comparable system outside of an ASRS, which is like a, a moving crane inside of a facility attached to the floor, latches onto the racking. And that thing waves back and forth as much as those old funny automotive, those old balloons that you had in front of the dealerships when they were right. younger. Yeah. Our bot essentially sucks itself to the floor 1.5 ton force to allow us to go 30 feet high. But not only do that, it actually allows us to move cases that are heavier, cases that humans can't pick or cases that aren't shipped out right now because, because of guidelines, they can't be moved by a human. Our bot can achieve a hundred pound per pick case. Never been done before. The highest pound pick in the industry right now sits at about 60 to 64 pounds. We are automating operations that have never even seen automation because you can't automate a 75 pound case. You can't automate an 80 pound case. You look at the beverage industry, wine, beer, liquid is heavy. Liquid is heavy. And moving a wine case or a beer case can't really be done off of racking at height. And the number one problem in the beverage and bottle industry right now is most case pickings are done at the ground level off of pallets. It's crazy hectic. Each cart's moving all over the place. It's incredibly expensive. It's reliant on human labor. Whereas with my bot, you can use that 30 foot high facility you have stored in pallet racking and get the job done quicker, more efficient and safer. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have people bending over picking something off a pallet. I love what you're doing. I love what you're doing. Wrap this bad boy up. Put a bow on this for me, Luke. For sure. Really what I want people to take away from this interview. Thank you so much for having us on. You can automate your facility. I know there's people on this podcast that probably come to you, Joe, as a center of influence to understand what is happening in the industry today. The Rubik allows you to be the Amazon without having the Amazon budget. Why? You can keep your existing infrastructure. You can keep your existing corrugate and, and box configuration and SKUs. You can keep your operation kind of product development where our, our conveyor belt is here and our rackings there. You can keep what you have today and you can still automate and achieve those high levels of throughput, that high level of optimization that you look for, all in a way that allows it to be the most dis least disruptive, least capitally intensive upfront, but most importantly, the most valuable for you. What I also want to say is you can have a real partner. The Rubik isn't a 20-year-old company. We, we, we are about to ship our first system out to market in Toronto, but if you're looking for someone to work with that wants to hold your hand and walk through your facility and understand what you can do. I'll be honest with you. Most of the time I walk into a facility in first glance, I'm like, this is going to be hard. But when we speak to each other and we understand what they're looking for and how they're looking to automate and why they're looking to automate, there is always a use case for the Rubik's Freedom Pick Bot inside that facility. Whether you're small, medium to large, we'll work with anyone. We're not just looking to work with Amazons of the world. So what is the payback on this? What's the ROI? Oh, hard to simulate over the phone right now. It really depends on kind of the scenario and how many bots and, and throughput. I would say that the Rubik would very easily achieve a, a 12 to 18 month ROI in most scenarios quickly. And to be honest with you, from what I understand, most ROIs in robotics right now sit at that four, five, six year level. We're cutting that down really largely for a number of reasons. But how about you do this, Joe? Tell them to call me. Let's get some of their data. 
Let's get it into our system and let's show them really how valuable it can be. Yep. So what I'll do is I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile. I'll put a link to your website and any other links you give me. I will make sure we put those in the show notes. So Luke, I like to interview smart, interesting people like you who are killing it in the space. Who else should I interview? For sure. A number of people, but I think of an entity level, high-tech intralogistics. Early on, we started talking to them just to understand the market. And they really have this presence in robotics, automation, and software right now that is what is the next thing we need to do? They're already ahead of the curve and they're thinking light years ahead and they're looking to help clients today. A few mentionable people, Zach Bohem, I believe is their VP of Robotic Solutions, Colette Hen, VP of R&D. They, in my mind, are probably some of the smartest minds in this industry. What is the company? High Tech Intralogistics, H-Y-T-E-K. Okay, interesting. And what do they do? They're an integrator. They are, for anyone who doesn't understand what that might mean, they're a distributor of technologies, but they go even higher than that. They believe in servicing clients. They believe in being a consultant and a voice of reason and kind of the center of influence that you are for podcasts in this industry, Joe. They really are that first demand person that you can talk to and say, I need help. And they'll not only come in and figure out what that help is, but they'll also look outside of that and go, hey, there's some other stuff we're looking at too. And, and for us, that they could be a great partner channel to work in this industry and help clients on, on a large scale. I love it. I love it. So I'll talk to Zach or Colette. Hook me up. So what conferences will we see you guys at? The Rubik is excited that we are most likely going to unveil Freedom Pick on a kind of larger level at Modex in Atlanta next year. That's March, I believe, 11th to the 18th. We will definitely be attending Promat. We'll definitely be looking to attend Automate. But Modex, I believe, will probably be our real soiree into kind of that mass media trade show channel next year, 2024. Awesome. Awesome. We'll see you there. Luke, thank you so much for coming on. I love what you guys are doing. I think, again, I think we, we all hear about automation. We all hear about these cool robots that are coming. And again, the time is now this, there has not always been a, a compelling business case because we didn't have the right products. And they were, if we did, they were very expensive. It was all space age. It was all Hey, it's a cool YouTube video, but is it ever going to actually make me money? Now I think we're there. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. I think the coolest part about my job is I have something that is so complex in terms of its nature of what it can do, but so simple in terms of its approach. Keep your existing facility and let's automate it. I love it. I love it, Zach. <laughs> Luke, thank you so much for coming on my podcast. <laughs> thank you so much, Joe. I hope you have a great weekend coming up and uh, can't wait to see you uh, across the industry. Yep. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You have been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage with leaders in the logistics and supply chain community. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, hit the like button, and leave us a nice review on Apple or Spotify or wherever else you listen. Also, please check out our videos on YouTube and connect with us on LinkedIn. We're very big on LinkedIn. And you can also reach us on the logisticsoflogistics.com, our website.